Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm joined today by Behemoth of the MotoGP Paddock, David Emmett from Moto Matters. Uh, good afternoon, David. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Neil. Are you calling me fat? <laughs> I was not calling you. I was merely hinting. Uh, <laughs> um, this episode is going to be about the, the Grand Prix of Misano, a very dramatic race and, and one which has uh, uh, some repercussions for the, uh, the MotoGP World Championship. So we were at Misano last week, David, and it was uh, it was a very dramatic affair. This title race keeps getting more unpredictable and tighter and stranger by the race almost. I think um, we now have a, a situation with Mark Marquez and Andrea De Vizioso, both level on points at the, at the top of the championship, and Marquez leads that on count back, I think, the number of uh, second places he's had. Uh, it's yep. the seventh time, I looked this up, it's the seventh time that the title lead has changed hands this year, which is quite a number. Um, and we, I, I suspect I suspect it's a record, but you'd have to go back and, uh, and count it. And the other thing is, of course, we've got, with what, this is race... 14, that was, 13. this was race 13, and uh, 13 races used to be a complete season. Yeah, exactly. And it was also the fifth race of the year that was decided on the last lap. Um, we saw Mark Marquez uh, take uh, a really quite brilliant win, um, his fourth win of the year, and I, my opinion, his best win of the year. Um, what was your assessment of Mizano, David? It was a bit of an odd weekend, really, but it was a um, not a classic race, but a good race. Absolutely fascinating, great for the championship interesting for the championship also uh, lots and lots of little sort of side stories including uh, Mark Marquez uh, uh, crashing during warm-up and then um, the crash being cheered by uh, lots of Valentino Rossi fans and volunteer and then that persuading Mark Marquez to take a little bit more risk in the race and uh, actually go and win the race so uh, yeah there was there was lots lots to see there was uh, Danilo Petrucci riding brilliantly again and nearly winning the race um, there was just um, it had lots and lots of stories also the number of crashes the weather it was unseasonably cold for Mizano um, yeah it, it had a, a little bit of everything yeah I think it was uh, 80 crashes alone on Sunday across the uh, the three warm-up sessions and the three races which is just a staggering number really and this is for a track that was resurfaced uh, 2015 I think at the start of, of that yeah, year t- yeah, 2000, yeah 2015 I, um, I haven't spoken to Janos Feli but I spoke to someone who did speak to him and he was in charge of actually resurfacing the track and uh, he was completely mystified because at the test in August uh, when the when the riders were there in August the the grip was absolutely fantastic and all the riders during the weekend said the same thing the grip of the track changed totally changed completely so it was um, there was lots of mysteries no one has a a very good explanation for what happened yeah it was very strange it was interesting to hear Romano Fanati speaking after uh, his Moto3 win and he posited the theory that uh, you know as the Misano track is very, very close, within walking distance of the beach. He felt that any kind of storm that was coming off the uh, the Adriatic coast uh, would somehow deposit some of the uh, some of the salt from the sea, which would gather on the track and kind of lead to a lack of grip. Um, but yeah, it was definitely peculiar. We were going on on Sunday night. We were going through the the records of the, the number of crashes over the past seven seasons, I think, and this yeah. was far and away the highest number uh, of crashes over a weekend. And it was also, I think. Um, the, the second highest number was Mizano in 2014, um, which was the year that kind of caused the the riders to ask for the the surface to be to be redone. So uh, yeah, so it's it's it, 
it was treacherous in the past and even now uh, with his new surface it seems to be treacherous and that in some ways made uh, the feat of the, the leading men all the more remarkable um, we saw many very close moments for the, the top three guys um, and you know over the weekend we saw once again that the sort of the, the form book the, the circuits that are supposed to suit one certain manufacturer um, it doesn't really apply in 2017 yeah it, it doesn't seem like there are now you know Honda tracks and Ducati tracks and and Yamaha tracks it does still seem that there are um, Yamaha suits high grip tracks a bit better and uh, the Honda suits low grip tracks a little bit better and the Ducati is, seems to be the like a good compromise, it sits somewhere in between and is and, and is stronger both of them. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a simple explanation really, other than that. I mean, the the other thing is, of course, that a lot of tracks have been resurfaced re recently, and so grip levels are becoming a little bit more consistent. But maybe just the bikes are getting better, as you know, the all of the bikes are a little bit more competitive. Yeah, and they're, I guess, a little closer together than they had been in past seasons. Yeah, so we saw we saw Mark decisively taking the lead on the final lap of this race. Um, is this Mark's best performance of the season for you? Uh, yes, probably, yes. I mean, it was certainly his most determined uh, performance. It was also a little bit of the old Mark, if you know what I mean. It's um, uh, because it was a risk trying to win this on the last lap. Um, he could have crashed out, and if he had crashed out, then that would have been a complete disaster for his championship. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it was just, you know, amazing. There are some uh, uh, photographs doing the rounds of him having completely lost the rear, and he's he sort of, you know, th three quarters of the way off the bike uh, while chasing Petru uh, Petrucci. But, he, you know, he manages, and he stays on the bike, and he manages to win the race. So, uh, yes, it's a remarkable performance. Yeah, absolutely. 20 crashes for the season for Marquez, which uh, far surpasses his number from 2016. Um, but once again, he showed that it doesn't really happen well. Let's say since after France, it doesn't really happen in the in the race. He had three crashes over over free practice and warm up, and qualifying as well. And yet he uh, he manages to find that limit just in time for the the race, and therefore knows uh, just how far to push the envelope. Yeah, I mean it's a completely bizarre way of um, understanding where the limit is, but it, it works. Um, it it demonstrably works. Um, what he does is he goes out and finds where the limit is, falls off during uh, during practice so that he doesn't have to fall off during the race. But it's an incredibly risky way of doing things. Um, but then I think his um, his preparation is entirely based around. Uh, preventing injury he's incredibly uh, limber incredibly flexible he does an awful lot of stretching exercises uh, because you know sort of the the the, the more you can stretch the um, less likely you, you likely you are to suffer uh, either a fracture or, or especially you know to, to strain your knee or to tear a tendon or something like that um, uh, so that's that's obviously an important part of his uh, training and he or he also just has um, the most ridiculous reflexes. He has absolutely amazing uh, reflexes. Um, I think at some point I'm going to have to go and talk to um, uh, his, uh, find out if he has a personal trainer and who his personal trainer is and what they do uh, uh, about it. But you just, just seeing him prepare to get ready on the bike, you can see how 
idiotically uh, uh, flexible as he is. You could fold him. You could, you know, you could quite easily fold him in a shoebox and send him off uh, to uh, uh, to another country. And because uh, he he could quite easily fold himself up in there. So there is a um, uh, he, if if this MotoGP thing doesn't work out, he can always get a job in the circus. <laughs> Sounds like uh, sounds like he's got his retirement sorted then, David. <laughs> yeah, it was it was remarkable, and it's it's always uh, interesting to to witness how his confidence is really affected by it. Um, we saw it again in, in Barcelona earlier in the year. He had four crashes, I think, on Saturday alone, and two of those were in uh, the Q two qualifying shootout. And you know, logically thinking, you would assume that that would uh, go some way to to really affecting him to, to make him a little more cautious but it, it it makes him more cautious in a sense in that he doesn't uh, he doesn't push beyond the limit but um, in terms of how he approaches the race it, it really is uh, it's quite impressive how he's able just to, to do that and I think he said when he was following Petrucci um, he was kind of constantly debating whether he could do it and it was only in the last five or six laps I think he saw Petrucci have a big moment coming out of turn six around lap 22 or 23 I think that was probably an indicator right there that uh, Petrucci was pushing as far as he could and Mark still had a little bit in reserve. And um, yeah, it was just a real thinking man's uh, performance. So uh, yes, it really puts him, I would say, back in the driving seat with Aragon coming up for sure. Uh, a track that he, yeah. he, said he regards as his favourite. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. And the other, the, the other thing is that it is a little bit easier when you're following someone else around rather than leading because you're, uh, you can see where they're having a moment and you can be that little fraction more conservative through the difficult parts. And you can see where they are sort of gaining and where they're going through easily. And then you can try and find your own, uh, uh, find the limits at the, uh, the, the places where they, the guy in front of you seems to be doing well. So that maybe made his life a little bit easier but uh, still I mean you know Petrucci was not hanging about I mean like Petrucci afterwards basically said um, because at uh, Assen he was absolutely devastated at, uh, at getting second but um, here he was not devastated at all he was or well he was frustrated but um, he knew that he'd given 100% they not left anything out on the track. This was the most that was in it, and he just simply had no had nothing for Mark. He had no way to stop Mark, and that made it a lot easier for him to uh, to accept. Uh, I mean, I f you feel sorry for Danila because he really is very very close to a win. He's going to win a race at some point in his career. And it must be frustrating to just keep on missing out. So Mark takes the win. Danilo second. Davizioso already thinks uh, thinks his way through that third place and decides that uh, 16 points are better for his championship than anything else. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Maverick Vinales in fourth. Um, obviously, he was the sole movie star Yamaha representative at Misano uh, in the wake of his teammate uh, Valentino Rossi's injury that he sustained during training. And Vinales had a really strong weekend um, in free practice and in qualifying. He was got his first pole position since Mugello. Then the rain arrived Mavericks wet weather riding has been called into question several times and we really weren't sure what was going to happen at some points in the race we even suspected that it was going to be a disaster he was going to slowly slip and slide his way all the way down the top 10 um, but he rallied and in, it was interesting to hear him speaking afterwards he said that that was his best performance ever in the in the rain. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he looks really good. He was really competitive because in the past he has been fairly shocking in the wet. Had some very miserable results. Speaking of his results in the wet, David, I have them here. In 2015, there were three wet races. He finished 11th, 14th, and then he didn't finish one of them. And then last year on the Suzuki again, he was 9th, 12th, 9th, and 6th. So that doesn't exactly speak of a man that was, uh, you know, at one with his machine in in uh, in rainy conditions. Um, but I guess there was always that suspicion that uh, that it was a Suzuki um, that was that was not performing rather than him. Um, but I guess other races um, qualifying. I think at Assen, for example, uh, he was eleventh qualifying for the section ring as well. He was eleventh too, and he was basically nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's clear that there was still something there, but. It, what we did learn at, at Misano was that uh, he now has two of the so-called 2018 chassis, although whether you could call it 2018 chassis when you're racing it in 2017 um, uh, is a different matter. But anyway, uh, at the Misano test, they tested a new chassis. It was the first prototype of the bike that they were going to be using next year. Um, that they Both uh, Rossi and, um, uh, and Vinales really liked the chassis because... Rossi was injured. That meant that uh, Vinales could use both of the 2018 uh, chassis. He had both of the uh, 2018 chassis at his disposal. He could uh, concentrate on that, and that 2018 chassis seemed to make a big, uh, a bit, uh, certainly a big difference, just in terms of mechanical grip, uh, giving a better feel, and also the electronics. They changed the, uh, they made some electronics changes as well, and that seems to have, uh, have helped. And it's given him a lot more confidence, and that confidence also has gone through into the wet. I think. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, and uh, he spoke about. Um, he said that in the race, I think it was the the chassis really helped with his front end feel. He felt just as he did in the in the dry, really confident, really able to push and break as late as he wanted. Um, but it was the he said it's still in the wet. At least he still didn't quite have the traction that he needed to to go with the front guys. Um, but it was still quite a quite a big test of his um, you know of his championship credentials to stick in there to remain calm. He was being put under pressure throughout the race, really. From uh, one point, Crutchlow was behind him, Baz Miller, uh, Michele Piro as well, and uh, he stood he stood firm, really. And uh, yeah, I mean, he he really had to work for his uh, work for his position, and he uh, and he pulled it off. Fourth is a is a good result. Fourth also is good damage limitation. He's still uh, in the championship. And I think again, just the what will have given him the most confidence was uh, progress. The the idea that he was making progress and that he was actually, um, you know, he, he could be competitive. He could uh, uh, he was in with a chance and he wasn't completely lost as soon as the as soon as conditions changed. A good race it was from Maverick Pinales, but wasn't quite the same for Jorge Lorenzo. It had the potential to be something really special, David. Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone, uh, well, uh, people on Twitter, at any rate, uh, they are convinced that um, uh, Lorenzo can't race in the wet, which is wrong. Lorenzo is very good in the wet, as long as it really is genuinely wet. Um, uh, wet or dry, that works, not sort of like half and half. The trouble is, most of the time we've been racing, it's been half and half rather than absolutely pouring it down or uh, or completely dry. Um, he was off to a flying start. Um, uh, <laughs> eventually, that would turn into a literally a literally uh, flying start. He led for, what, four, five, six laps um, uh, and was just, he was putting huge amounts 
amount of um, uh, time into the field. Um, he was, you, you know, turning laps at a pace which uh, Marquez and Petrucci would only match right at the end of the race in the in the, in the final laps once the track started to dry a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, he showed real uh, real potential. You really get the feeling that Lorenzo is getting there. But things are just not quite going his way. Do you know what I mean? There are there, there, there's still one or two little. He, he, he needs a little bit of luck, and it's the luck which keeps on a which keeps eluding him and leaves him in uh, sort of leaves him in trouble. And it was interesting to hear him speaking about his concentration because he's renowned for you know having this absolutely incredible level of concentration you know you just have to look at the the final couple of races of 2015 that race in Valencia is particular you know you barely saw him make yeah. one mistake the entire race in the most incredible high pressure situation um, here he said that he his mind became slightly occupied he knew he had to change a, a mapping setting on his bike as he started the sixth lap and that was just something that was playing with his mind he was thinking when he should do it when he should uh, when he should change the map and he said almost the next thing he knew he was uh, you know he's flying through the air so yeah you just feel with Lorenzo it's yeah as you say he's very close but he's just not in this instance anyway just not operating in that you know that absolute highest kind of level that we've seen him do in the past you know in terms of concentration and putting it all together but I do think you know it's going to be really exciting next year I found what he said really interesting saying that basically the uh, uh, because he had he had to change a map and uh, he had to remember which buttons to press and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the, the fact this was a very, something very, very simple to do on the Yamaha and it was much more complicated to do on the, on the Ducati. Uh, this is something which you hear a lot of from people who are uh, who have worked with Ducatis that um, things are not always done in the most logical way uh, and it really felt like there was a uh, it, it was a failure of user interface design if you like um, uh, there's no one really thought has thought through how to do this in the simplest way possible they they know what they need to do and they expect the riders to, to do it but they don't make the riders job very much easier and I think definitely something um, I shall be asking the other Ducati riders at Aragon is you know how how easy it is compared to other bikes to actually switch uh, switch the electronics around. Okay, great, David. Thank you for that. Uh, that brings us really to an end of the first part of the show. We'll be back in a minute with part two. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the second part of this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast. Uh, okay, so Mizano wasn't quite the uh, the Mizano that we knew and that we loved from uh, from previous years. The rain obviously played a, pack, uh, a part in that. Uh, another thing was perhaps more important uh, important and was of greater significance was the absence of uh, one Valentino Rossi, a man who uh, who broke um, broke his right leg uh, training before the race, uh, the Thursday before the race it was, when he was uh, out in, in, in some enduring bikes with his friends. And uh, this not only kept him out of Mizano, it'll keep him out of Aragon as well, it ends his championship hopes. And um, it sort of let us see a little bit uh, of what life may be like 
uh, once he eventually hangs up his leathers. That was the most interesting thing. Obviously, he broke his leg on the Thursday, exactly a week before Mizano. It was operated on, on, on the Friday, and so a large number of people would have already uh, bought their tickets. Uh, but apparently, uh, Mizano, because, I mean, Mizano really is in the in the heart of motorcycle, Italian motorcycle racing. There's lots and lots of races who come from around, from around there. There's lots and lots of little cart tracks and bike tracks and God knows what else. So it's, it's it really is sort of, it's the home of racing, if you like. And so people will often make a very late decision about whether they're going to go to the track or not, um, just because they live very close. Um, and so there were still lots and lots of tickets on sale during the in the week uh, before Misano. And in the end, attendance wasn't down anywhere near as much as uh, as either you or I thought. I mean, we had a little sort of side bet on it. I thought it would be 10% less. Um, you thought it would be a lot more than 10%. <laughs> and in the end, it ended up uh, on Sunday's attendance only being, for, what, 5 6% down. Yeah, 4,000 down in, uh, the year before. Uh, I think it was 100,000 in 2016 and then 96 uh, yeah, 2017, 96 being, I think, and it was miserable weather mm. this year, much more miserable than than, than in the past. So uh, it's really hard to sort of separate it out. I mean, it's um, uh, I think it's difficult to draw real conclusions, but uh, and also, you know, I think we might have had this uh, discussion before about uh, Jerez and uh, and Silverstone and attendance numbers and all the rest of it and how they are basically. Uh, how can we put this uh, politely? Massaged. There are, there's a little bit of voodoo involved, um, and um, black magic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, the place looked packed. Uh, just visually, it looked packed. When you looked out at the grass banks at the grandstands, there weren't very many empty spaces. So, and the paddock as well was rammed. Yeah. you know, from Friday right yeah, the way exactly. through to Sunday. Which, which, and Misano is the the absolute worst paddock of the year in terms of uh, in terms of fans because well because because it is the center of motorcycle racing everyone brings their family and their friends and um various hangers on and so the the the, the paddock is absolutely packed and and it was still packed even without Rossi so uh, yeah it was um it was quite I was surprised. I really thought there would there would be a bigger surprise. But I mean, do you, Neil? Do you think this uh, we can take any lessons from this for the future of MotoGP? Um, well, I think we can. You know, if you look at the uh, if you look at the show that is, uh, you know, that we have at the moment, we've got a really intense championship battle. We've got an Italian, another Italian rider on an Italian bike in the middle of that championship battle. So you know, all logic points to. The fans still want to turn up. We've had fantastic racing this year. Um, it's not quite the same as when Rossi was last injured in 2010 during the 800cc era when racing, let's be honest, wasn't that great. Um, you know, you would see... Yeah, 2010, I mean, I was there in 2010. I was working in 2010, working in the paddock. And uh, in 2010, I think in the couple of races he was away, there were 15 finishers and, um, uh, you know, 17 starters. Uh, and it really was a bit of a... It was, it was a complete snooze fest. So there was there was no draw other than uh, other than Valentino Rossi star power, and I think uh, the, that has very much changed. Yeah, and in back in 2010, you know, you had th the three guys that were going head to head with Rossi, Pedrosa, Stoner, and Lorenzo. At that time, were guys that you know was quite rare to actually see them have a real handlebar to handlebar race. 
Um, mm. You're almost dependent on Rossi to bring that kind of edge to to the fighting towards the front. Um, this year, obviously, we've we've already mentioned that the bikes are a lot closer together. We've got Mark Marquez, who you know is as aggressive, uh, if not even more aggressive than Rossi in uh, you know in kind of close combat situations. She always guaranteed some action with him around. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think you know, obviously, MotoGP is in a much healthier position. Uh, we still need to take these attendance figures with a big sprinkling of salt and also be cautious because, you know, as you already mentioned, I'm sure the majority of people that, um, well, a lot of the people that, that showed up, you know, had already booked their flights, booked their accommodation, booked their tickets. Um, maybe a truer test will lie uh, somewhere like Aragon uh, in two weeks' time. Um, I disagree. I can't see Aragon as a good test because, for a start, it's in the heart of. I mean, it's, it's, it really is. It's in the heart of Marquez country. Secondly, it's also it's quite not sparsely attended, uh, attended, but it's the least well attended of the um, uh, of the four Spanish rounds sure. because uh, because of the because of the location. Um, there, uh, it's a very Spanish round, so there's lots and lots of sort of like Spanish people. Um, uh, you know, the, the the people are going there to support the favourite Spanish riders. Uh, there's oh, there's lots of Rossi fans. There's always lots of Rossi fans. But if I was a Valentino Rossi fan, it is, uh, and I wanted to see Valentino Rossi race. Uh, it is not the race that would be at the top of my list to attend. I would add it's my absolutely favourite race uh, because of its location. Um, uh, not even because of the track or anything like that. I just love the, I just love where it is. I mean, you and me have both spoken about, uh, you know, beautiful drives into the circuit, and Aragon is right the up best there. or the second best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Aragon and Michelle yeah, yeah. Are, are yeah. probably the best for, for the views that you get. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And my wife and I will stay on for a week afterwards to go walking in the mountains there, which uh, which are just uh, uh, stunning. So it's just, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of my favourites. But I, I, I totally, if I was Valentino Rossi fan, I was choosing which uh, which race I was going to choose to go and see my hero. Uh, Aragon would not be um, would not be anywhere near the top of the list. Okay, yeah, take your point on board. That's uh, that's a fair point. Maybe if, for example, he was uh, he was going to be absent at Sepang, you know, I guess it, yeah. you know, Sepang is a place where you see a lot of huge number of Rossi fans uh, maybe yeah. that would be a, a better gauge um, yeah ab ab absolutely I mean that's that would be a much better uh, a much better gauge because it's a much better um, uh, it's much more about uh, um, it's a track where he's where he's always done well it's a track where he could uh, where he can win races um, uh, and he has masses and masses of fans out in um, uh, out in Malaysia and the uh, and the region so uh, yeah I mean that would be that would be a better one even perhaps for Valencia I mean Valencia might be a better test if he was going to be uh, absent at, uh, at Valencia but uh, uh, yeah I don't think I don't think Aragon is going to be a, a good test um, so Mizano was a little bit too soon to tell Aragon is a little bit too uh, unique or peculiar. Pick your uh, pick your own word uh, to be able to tell. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. But but there is hope. Basically, we, we left. Oh, we yeah. left Mazana with hope in our hearts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I also want to say that the big difference also is Michelin's because basically in the Bridgestone era, it was all about the front tyre and getting the maximum out of the front tyre, and um, uh, so. I think I remember asking um, 
I remember asking Casey Stoner about this and Casey Stoner said, you know, so why have we got boring races? And he said, basically, you know, everyone's going just as fast in qualifying as practice. There isn't any way you can get that little bit of extra performance out of it. So the way that people line up on the grid is the way that people are going to, uh, are going to cross the line um, at the end of the race. So, uh, yeah, and, and the Michelins have been very different. They require a lot more management. The, the spec uh, electronics has also made it more complicated and uh, put more in the hands of the riders in terms of time management so yeah i mean there's a there's a lot more to the show now than uh, than just personalities but you know there's also a few personalities oh yeah quite a few um i think you're uh, you're understating the whole thing a little bit there uh by saying there's only a few personalities there's definitely quite quite a lot but uh, you know a lot of people obviously it's a it's a bit of a shame that rossi is out of the championship battle um but i can't help but think um, or contemplate the possibility of Rossi getting involved, uh, you know, in a close race at uh, Phillip Island, at Sepang or at Valencia, um, knowing that there are three guys in the title fight, and just wondering how he's going to how he's going to approach that. You know, who is he going to favour? I think we can safely assume that he's not going to favour Mark Marquez to win. Well, yes. I mean, this is a little um, uh, conspiracy theory we were talking about in the car um, uh, coming back from Misano back to the airport. This is an ideal opportunity for uh, Valentino to uh, to get involved in the championship because he's going to be, you know, he's going to be out the running by the time he's missed two races. He's going to be too far. He's already, I think, 42 points behind. By the time we leave Misano, he's going to be somewhere between 50 and 60 points behind. But Mark Marquez will be uh, in a strong position to win uh, and he will have two uh, strong challenges. And uh, so... Uh, getting involved uh, uh, any influence which uh, Valentino Rossi has um, uh, can actually make a, a substantial difference to the to, to the championship and uh, considering that Philip Island is the place where the whole 2015 conspiracy kicked off of uh, Mark Marquez messing around with the championship because he didn't want uh, a Valentino Rossi to become champion. You would think that extract his revenge and, um, uh, and and mix things up, and possibly the you know the first place that he'll physically be able to uh, to, to yeah. run at the front because we assume at Mategi he'll be a little bit ring rusty. It's a track that's very heavy on braking, and you know might be quite difficult you know for for someone returning from a broken leg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and Mateki is not a race, it's not a track which really is really conducive to close racing. Whereas Phillip Island is, uh, because it is so flowing, um, and it offers lots of different ways of going fast around there. Um, and historically, uh, it's, you, know, you know, one of Ross's best tracks. Yeah, yeah, one of his best tracks is a place which always produces great and close racing. It allows uh, riders to get bunched uh, up together, so uh, I can easily see uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Rossi deciding to get involved in things and then uh, pretend to be completely innocent after the uh, race has finished. Yeah, because it's, it's also interesting that I look at his relationship with Vinales and obviously since Vinales has moved across the Yamaha, their relationship has very subtly changed. If you listen, <laughs> if you listen to Maverick speak at uh, Mizano, he was saying all the right things. He was saying how, yeah. how sad it was not having Valentino there, how, how much more difficult his weekend was um, because he didn't have Rossi's data to analyze and Rossi's input uh, to go off. 
which is all complete nonsense, really. Um, but uh, well, it, it's not complete nonsense in that he's, um, uh, he, you know, they definitely looks at Rossi's uh, Rossi's data the same as Rossi looks at Vinales's data. But um, uh, basically, what he was saying was, um, uh, it's a shame Valentino wasn't here because he couldn't help me win the championship, <laughs> which is not quite the same as um, I miss his charming personality and wish I could go and uh, and have a lovely cup of tea with him. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But, you know, Rossi, um, looking at Vinales, you would have to say he would probably favor Davizioso over uh, over Maverick, you know, uh, this new kid that's come into his team. And I don't know, we're, it's, it's pure speculation, of course, on our part, but it's uh, it's interesting to speculate in this matter, I think. I think the only thing that's going to matter is that Marquez doesn't win. So I think he's going to um, uh, get involved in that. Uh, I think he's going to, I mean, first of all, he's going to try and win the race if he can. Um, the the next thing he's going to do is if he can't win the race is to uh, try and prevent Mark Marcus from winning the race um, and to ensure that uh, either Dovi or Vinales uh, or preferably both finish ahead of him so yeah I mean to me that's the that's the real um, uh, the, that's his, his real objective and ab- apart from that he's fairly uh, he's entirely agnostic about who, um, uh, who who gets to win as long as it's not Mark yeah I think that's safe to assume. Absolutely. So we have, well, it's been announced that uh, Michael Vandermark, three times Suzuki ERR winner and uh, Yamaha World Superbike guy, will come in to fill uh, Rossi's seat for the, the race at Aragon. A fellow Dutchman, David, uh, a rider that you know and have you know followed, I guess, closely through uh, through his rise through World Superbike and World Superbike. Uh, what can we expect from Michael? Can we expect a lot? He's, he's basically going on to one of the best bikes on the grid. You can't expect very much from him because, uh, I mean, basically he goes on the bike completely unt- with with no testing whatsoever. Um, even when Alex Lowe's got a chance last year, uh, he had the Bruneau test and before he got a chance to ride the bike at Mizano. This year it is uh, sort of straight in. No, uh, no testing the first time that he gets on the bike is going to be um, uh, FP1 on Friday. Um, uh, he's going to just have to, you know, temper his expectations. Uh, most of all, enjoy the experience, and then secondly, just concentrate on learning, see what he can learn, uh, learn from it. But I mean, if I had to put a um, uh, an estimate to it, I would say. Uh, he needs to be somewhere between 10 and 15 where 15 is acceptable and 10 would actually be quite a good result and if he actually you know got inside the top 10 that would be uh, exceptional and the reason for that is just also just the level of competition mm. if you look at all the people he's got to beat just to you know just to finish uh, you know 11th or 10th um, those are the, I mean it, Look at uh, look at uh, at Misano. You know, Cal Crutchlow was thirteenth. Alvaro Bautista was twelfth. That's um, those are serious. The, the, those are seriously competitive and fast riders. Um, so yeah, it's a it, it, it it's a really really big challenge. I think it's going to be a good experience for him. It's, going to, it's certainly going to be good for uh, for Dutch motorcycle racing just to, to to have someone on the grid again. But um, you know, he's not going to he's not going to get a podium. Okay. So we should uh, temper our expectations somewhat uh, ahead of his rival. Yeah, I guess if you look at, at you know, a, a precedent in the past was Jonathan Ray coming across to take over uh, Casey 
stoners um casey stoners back for two races in 2012 i think it was and johnny finished i think eighth in his first audience and then seventh at the second which was also at aragon um yeah but as you mentioned you know i don't think we can really compare the depth of field of 2012 to to the one we have now uh, where we've got six you know six different factories in the grid and yeah, in 2012, you basically had uh, two fast Yamahas, one fast Honda, uh, and and a struggling Ducati, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, and, and some fast satellite riders. You know, I think Cal Crutchlow was on the uh, was on the satellite Yamaha at the time. Was pretty quick. Bautista um, uh, Bradle, and that was that was it, really, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, a couple of fast Hondas, uh, uh, satellite Hondas, but. Um, uh, uh, 2000 and uh, I mean uh, and you had a whole bunch of CRT bikes but yeah I mean there were only sort of you know maybe 12 10 12 sort of fast bikes on the grid so uh, not to, to 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 play down what Jonathan did I mean what Jonathan Ray did there was really quite exceptional um he did a, a, an outstanding job and um I think he is still think he's sort of underrated but uh, I don't think that um, uh, I don't think that Michael van der Mark can hope to sort of like get, get seventh or eighth just because you know we've got so many fast and compa- competitive riders just the, the list of names he's got to beat to actually uh, get a strong result is is there and he doesn't have the machine advantage the way that the uh, factory riders used to yeah it should be very interesting to see how magic Mickey gets on okay excellent so David that brings us to a close of our second part of, uh, of our show. We'll be back after the short advertising break with the final section. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, so we are back with the third and final part of this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to look at the two classes, the Moto2 and Moto3 classes, and the races that unfolded there at Mizano, and then we're going to go on to our uh, winners and losers section after that, okay? So we have a really, really tight championship fight in MotoGP, and not quite as tight, but equally as intriguing, I think, is uh, is what's going on in Moto2 at the moment, because Thomas Ludi really has got himself back into the thick of the action, yeah, I mean, and he's got himself through, through the or back into the thick of the action through riding a lot like Andrea Dovizioso in Mercer GP, which is you know being sensible and picking his fights. Um, whereas Franco Morbidelli, you know, basically took off at the front of the race and ended up crashing out. Which, when you're leading a championship, you're not supposed to crash out of races. You can't afford to. Uh, that left a actually again, it was a very good race between uh, Dominic Egerter and uh, Tom Luti. Um, you kudos to Egerter for actually uh, pulling it off and winning. And we had the first ever one two um, a Swiss or a Swiss rider one two in Grand Prix history. So um, it was a it was an intriguing it was an intriguing little race really. And, and again, lots of crashes which which confused uh, you know confused the whole situation. Yeah, exactly. And do you think that? Um Ludi, we saw he was shadowing Agatha pretty much throughout the uh, throughout the race after Morbidelli crashed, and we didn't see any attack uh, right at the end. Was that Ludi just holding his hands up and saying that um, you know twenty points is better than than a big fat zero? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That was what he said in the press uh, in the press conference as well. He said, you know, he could um, uh, the, the attempted pass would have been just too risky, and it wasn't worth the risk. It was better to um, uh, he could see that he couldn't get close enough to Eger to uh, take a proper pop at him, and so it was better to settle for second and uh, uh, and take the points. And he's now, I think, nine points behind uh, Morbidelli in, in the championship um, with five races to go. That's you know, there's nothing in it. It really is. It's, it's completely open, and it's going to be who can keep a cool head to the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. And as you mentioned, you know, Franco hasn't done that in certain situations this year. Uh, whereas yep. Ludi, we really just have to look at. I think uh, Germany is is really the only example of him sort of losing his head. Um, you know, when he was in a, a real position of strength. Um, and also, you know, considering Ludi's form at the flyaway races in the last couple of years, he usually is exceptionally strong at Mategi and Sepang. And then he also won at Phillip Island last year. So, uh, you know, I think he could look at the three the three races in uh, Japan, Australia and, and, and Malaysia with, uh, with real optimism. Yeah, exactly. And the, the other thing is, I mean, you, you get the feeling that he's uh, just riding better than he has been in a while as well. He's really... Uh, calm, but what you would see in previous years, he was he would have lots and lots of consistently good races, and then uh, a few complete disasters. He's not had those disasters, and his good races, the results of those good races, has been uh, have been much better than 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 in the past as well. Yeah, and I guess if you uh, if you look at Ludi's performances this year, you could almost say the same thing, perhaps less emphatically so. But the same thing about Romano Fanati, because there was a guy that, you know, was kind of renowned for blowing hot and cold throughout his Grand Prix career. And this year he seems to have found a, a kind of level of a level of consistency that, that wasn't really there in the past. It's starting to look like the best thing that ever happened to Romano Fanati was being thrown out of the VR46 team, uh, the Sky VR46 team, because it, that, in a strange way, also the earthquake that happened last year in the middle of um, uh, in the middle of Italy, because I think he was seeing at home. Uh, feeling sorry for himself and then he saw this village completely destroyed and lives wrecked just by the power of nature and it made him sort of like sit down and think it helps him put things in perspective um, and perspective can be a very very powerful thing in life and uh, including in racing and so it, it allows him to take things a little bit easier uh, and he's done um, it's been just fantastic for uh, uh, for his results yeah um, I mean, you know, a lot of the old feelings still remain. I still think he, his racecraft isn't very good. Um, yeah. And he, you know, there's been a, several situations this year where he's been in the victory fight and has, you know, let it all go to DePaul really in the final lap. Um, but but he is there at least pretty much week in, week out this year, you know, and you can kind of yeah. count those sort of disastrous showings on one hand, whereas in the past it was almost like a 50-50, you know, will he, won't he? Uh, you know, he'll either be in the victory fight or he'll be 18th or something like that. You know, we haven't really seen that this year. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I do think, you know, Fanati, maybe he's just, he could be like one of those guys, almost like... I'm not saying he's he's going to be the same as Casey Stoner or he'll have the same impact as Casey Stoner. But, you know, Stoner spoke about when he moved up to 250s, he, you know, he didn't really ever feel that comfortable in the, the sort of the, the helter-skelter, uh, you know, manic fight at the front of a 125 race. And, you know, he he preferred to, you know, obviously go out and be able to do his own thing at the front. 
you almost wonder if Fnatic in Moto Two um, might not be the same sort of you know eighteen riders scrapping for first place on the final lap uh, thing, and it does make you wonder how he will uh, how he'll be able to adapt to that. You know, I do fancy he will actually be quite quite well will surprise quite a few people next year. Um, That's a very good point. I agree. I mean, I think uh, there is definitely a chance that he's going to be uh, stronger in Moto2 just because um, he has sort of less things to think about. I mean, he's only going to be have like two or three riders to deal with at the front rather than, uh, as you say, 18. Um, because it has been his racecraft that has let him down. I mean, you know, in Moto3 races, you'll see him sort of approach the final lap in a pretty decent position and then somehow find a way to finish sort of like fifth or sixth. Uh, whereas Juan Mir has been the absolute opposite, who he is, you know, he approaches the final lap in sort of in a decent place and uh, and always finds a way to finish uh, on the podium unless, uh, unless there's a red flag. Uh, like there was at Silverstone, but yeah, I mean, for, yes, there's definitely there's definitely a loss of uh, Fanati. After the race, I was in the press conference, and Fanati said something really, really sim, uh, really, really interesting, which was that he knew from having ridden in the in the Italian Championship, even though he hasn't ridden that much at um, uh, at Misano, uh, but from riding in the Italian Championship, he knew that. Um, when it's wet, you have to stay off the racing line because the racing line is where there's lots of rubber and other, other bits and pieces. And uh, in the wet, it gets really, really slippery. And so he was uh, taking quite different lines. He was staying off the rubber and he was, you know, what was he, what, one, two, one or two seconds, a, a lap faster than everyone else for most of the race. It was almost embarrassing. It was almost as if he was in a completely different, uh, completely different race. Yeah, 28 seconds was his uh, eventual winning margin. The third half highest in Moto3 history. Um, the second highest margin was actually Finetti, his first ever Grand Prix win at Hareth in 2012. Um, which, was, which was also in the wet, I seem to remember. It was also in the wet, yes, for sure. So when he's, you know, when, he, when he's good, he is absolutely devastating. Um, would you care to, uh, to, to venture a guess at the, the highest winning margin? Who succeeded or who, um, who took the highest winning margin in Moto3 history, David, since 2012? Well, I was going to say Fanati at, uh, at Jerez, but um, th- since you've sold me that's the second highest, then it can't be that. The only other one that I can think is uh, Le Mans one year. I think Louis Rossi won by quite a lot. That's fourth, but, um, the fourth highest margin. Yeah, exactly. But uh, uh, who the f- who, who the biggest winning margin is, you, you shall have to enlighten me. It was uh, the Vieux Loy in Indianapolis, that crazy race in 2015, when I think only a handful of riders started the race in wet tyres and others had to pit. Uh, or maybe it's the other way around, only a handful of riders started in dry tyres. When it was, when it was kind yeah, of I think it's. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was slicks. Um, uh, there was a, a, a few people who were mental enough to start on slicks, and Livio Loy was uh, was one of yeah, them. Yeah, McPhee was second, I think, in that race. And uh, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, uh, exactly. He also started on uh, on slicks. I remember also that was Danny Kent came in and they took something like 40 or 50 seconds to change a wheel mm. and um, uh, took a really uh, a lot longer. No much longer perhaps anyway it uh, um they put a big dent into his championship that year or it, or it seemed to that was a weird race that was just a very very odd race because you don't get moto three bikes pitting very yeah, often Yeah, flag to flag moto three race i think that's maybe the only one we've ever seen um yeah the uh, the smaller classes basically uh that is it for them and we're going to move across to our winners and losers section now david we've uh We've had a few days to ponder the events of Misano, um, and we're going to pick our losers of the weekend. Uh, I have a name in my head. Uh, I'm guessing that it's probably not the same as the name in your head. Uh, no, because my, my, the, the name isn't. It isn't an individual. I'm choosing this time. Oh, is it? Uh, is it the collective? Is it? Uh, is it us as an audience? <laughs> <laughs> for being treated to a continual display of uh, of valor and uh, and you know 
fine entertainment. Uh, uh, indeed. Um, uh, this is this is losers, right? No, or winners? No, winners. Or winners. Yeah, we're talking winners here. Ah, right. Okay, you said losers, so you had me. You oh, had I? me confused. Oh, yes. Uh, now I've forgotten who I was going to have as my winner. Well, let's start with losers then. Right. Starting with losers. Um, uh, starting with losers. The collective, I uh, collective name I have in my head for losers is the Sky VR forty six or the VR forty six Racing Academy. Riders Whoa, Academy. Controversial. Be- well, look at the first of all, their star rider isn't there. I mean, Valentino is injured and he's out. That's, um, you know, unfortunate. Not a lot you can do about that. But if you look at the results of almost all of their riders, we saw Morbidelli, who's a VR46 rider, he crashes out and uh, loses a lot of points in the championship. Um, if you look at the Moto3 race, let's have a look. Where's Mino? Mino is ninth. Bastianini is Bastianini for no, VR46 no he's not no. oh right okay but all of their riders are they just you expect it's their home race these are Italian riders it's their home race you expect them to come there and absolutely uh, absolutely just burn up the place and they they didn't um, uh, I think Marini and Baldassari also uh, both managed to uh, uh, managed to crash out and the, the only well there were a, there were two VR46 riders who did well Banyaya and uh, Nicolo Bulega uh, Banyaya in Pekka Banyaya in Moto2 and uh, Bulega in uh, in Moto3 but you would expect them to have you know at least one at least one podium in each class and they didn't so um perhaps it's the pressure perhaps it's just the pressure which uh, which is on them in that uh, in that period yeah it's a very interesting choice i'm going to be slightly less controversial uh, and point perhaps to the to the more obvious danny pedroza um we came to Mizano. well we left silverstone thinking there was five guys in the hunt for the title race ross's injury meant we uh, we went to Mizano knowing that there was only four and we left Mizano knowing that there's basically only three because Danny Pedrosa suffered a real a real battering on uh, on Sunday in the rain. He just could not get his rear tyre anywhere near the sort of working uh, temperature that it needed to be in. And he had a real nightmare, a real nightmare. I think he, he finished somewhere in the region of well, yeah, 1 minute 38 seconds behind Mark Marquez, his teammate, on the same bike, which is just... For a man of Pedrosa's talents, for the guy who won at Mizano in 2016, that is just really bad. And, you know, we, when you're in the media center, you have the timing screens in front of you. And Pedrosa was regularly lapping four or five seconds a lap slower than the leading guys. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, it, it was interesting talk. He was really, really interesting afterwards, um, uh, after the race, in, in the way that he was explaining about trying to get heat into the rear tyre. Because if you actually look at the analysis pub- uh, timesheet, which... Uh, he's published on MotoGP.com afterwards. He said basically it took him something like uh, 17, 18 laps before uh, for the track to start drying enough for him to get some heat into it. And uh, literally within the space of, uh, and, and as soon as you've got a little bit of heat in it, you can push that little bit harder and that it's a it's a virtuous circle. So it gets more heat into the tyres. It means you can go faster and then you start getting up to speed. And literally his lap times drop from something like 140, 154s to 149s in in the space of like two laps. So within two laps, he's, he's, he's going five seconds a lap uh, uh, faster. So uh, yeah, he was penalised. He wasn't the only rider to be penalised. Alvaro Bautista after the race complained of exactly the same thing because he's this he's a similar size weight to Pedrosa not quite as extreme but he's uh, certainly amongst 
the shortest and the lightest. Um, his problems were resolved much more quickly. Um, uh, but yeah, he had exactly the same pl- uh, problem. No, just no grip from cold tyres until he could uh, get some uh, some kind of pressure on it. Yeah, yeah. So Pedroza now sits 49 points behind both Marquez and Davizioso in the championship. And I think we can safely say that that is a good night Vienna for him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely looks like it really looks like, you know, his championship is over. I mean, he needs too many. There are too many people ahead of him, uh, too many strong riders ahead of him. And uh, he would need too much to, uh, to to happen for him to be back in. Basically, uh, Dovizioso would have to take Vinales and Marquez out in the final corner or something and then uh, he would have to go on to win the race um, and th- it's not completely impossible but uh, it's not something yeah exactly I, I w- it's not something I would actually want to put money on and expect to earn a return on <laughs> okay so that brings us to our winners David your winner from Mizano I, I can't remember can you remember who I said uh, I can't remember no no no, right. Well, yeah. I, I need to think about this because I can't fucking remember. Okay. Well, I'll tell you my winner then in that case. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, to, 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 then that'll, that'll give me a chance to, uh, to to think about who my winner yes, is. Yes, to save our audience the indignation of having to listen to an, an aging man gather his uh, <laughs> gather his memory gather and his, his thoughts. thoughts. Um, my winner for the weekend was, uh, I think, you know, obviously Mark wrote a blinder, uh, took back the championship lead. But I think just for the weekend as a whole and for his performance on Sunday I'm going to go for Maverick Vinales because I really was expecting quite a tough weekend for him or sorry a tough race for him even though he qualified in pole and um, just thinking back to his uh, his struggles in the rain until now um, I spoke to his rider coach Wilco Zielenberg on Saturday about you know um, about his you know performances in the wet Wilco didn't sound too confident or too optimistic about uh, about his chances on Sunday and admitted that, you know, Maverick just needs to gain a lot more experience, needs to practice more in the wet. Any opportunity there is to take the M1 out in the wet, um, you know, he needs to do that. And at the moment, his confidence just isn't quite there to be able to want to go out anytime it's damp or wet and, you know, and get a feel for the bike. Um, but I think this was a really mature showing. Um, uh, as we mentioned before, he was under pressure throughout the race. He held his nerve. Um, there was one or two small mistakes, but really, I think he rode a you know quite a faultless race. Um, and you know, sure, I think it, at this at this moment, Mark is riding on another level to everyone else. I think Maverick's just just right behind him and just a, le- a level which is a little bit below. And I think there's been a few occasions this season where we've seen from Maverick, you know, evidence that you know he has the intelligence and the ability to go absolutely all the way. It might not be this year. You know, this year might just be one season too soon. But if you look at, uh, let me think of another example, like at the Saxon Ring. Um, you know, he had a terrible qualifying there. Really was upset on Saturday evening, but he rode through the field and beat Rossi to finish, you know, a really strong fourth. And that was him under the, the highest pressure there. And again, this was another race where he was really operating in real high scrutiny. And um, okay, he didn't win the race. He didn't even finish in the podium, but it was a huge improvement on what he had done before. Um, and I think it's a sign that, uh, you know, maybe he doesn't quite have the experience and all the tools as disposable uh, this year to win the championship. But um, I think, you know, Maverick has shown in certain occasions 
that uh, yeah that he's he's going to be a future champion. Um, and you know even before Rossi's injury, you look at the last four races he had outperformed Rossi and was faster than Rossi in each one of them. Um, so uh, yeah, so it should be interesting going to Aragon. Uh, one of his favorite tracks, Marquez's favorite track. Um, Maverick led the race there on a Suzuki last year. Um, I, for one, cannot wait to see uh, the, the battle unfolding between the pair of them there. Yeah, exactly. It's also a good track for Yamaha. Yamaha have traditionally been fast there. Uh, Lorenzo has been fast there as well. He's won on a, a couple of occasions. Very good point about Vinales. I think this is one of those uh, results where you look at it on paper and you think fourth, that's not very good. But actually, if you look at the underlying trend, um, it's one of those moments where you, where when you look back with hindsight, you pinpoint and say, right, that was th- that was one of the moments where things changed so yeah I think this was a, this was a big big race for, for Vinales definitely yeah and also just seeing the speed in the dry you know across free practice and qualifying yeah. you know he was right yeah, there exactly and if the race was dry you would have fancied him taking the fight to Mark yeah ab- absolutely I mean this is test of Misano again has been absolutely huge they've improved the electronics they've improved the chassis they've fixed a lot of the things that was uh, that was wrong with the bike and so uh, you know a good result in the ra- in, in the way is also just excellent for his uh, confidence. He seemed much, a much happier bunny afterwards as well, which is, again, uh, he's been, it's been like talking to a teenager from time to time. A little uh, Marty. Talking to him afterwards. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. A little, uh, a little Marty, a little uh, uh, storm up to my room, um, uh, uh, paint everything black and put Joy Division on very, very loud. Yes, uh, Harry Anfield's uh, Kevin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Whereas this is some much, uh, he was, uh, you know, was much more cheerful, much more positive, much more um, committed. He, uh, I, so I, I think there was something of a breakthrough there. So I agree that is definitely a very good. Um, uh, it's definitely a very good uh, choice. Have you recovered your memory sufficiently? My my memory my memory banks are once again recharged. I was, but what I remember was um, not only have they recovered, but I because I actually remembered who I was going to choose. I changed my mind um i I was going to choose tom looty because he's right back in the championship again the championship is completely open but i think i'm going to go for ducati because misano has traditionally been a pretty dismal circuit for ducati and yet we had two ducatis on the podium we had a ducati leading the race and i think if uh, Lorenzo hadn't made the mistake while he was changing maps I think there was a very very good chance he could have won this race we saw Michele Pirro fifth uh, Scott Ridding seventh it was just I mean this was just a really excellent weekend for Ducati at Misano which was just what they needed the bike is clearly competitive there the, the bike is clearly capable of winning um, if it wasn't for a certain Mark Marquez um, uh, yeah I mean this was uh, this I think were, it, it's a sign that the the, the, the bike is properly uh, properly competitive and of course they also launched their their new V4 street engine there as well so it was in terms of uh, they had a little bit of good publicity to boost that as well yeah and they had uh um, it was kind of regular to see in free practice four of the GP17s, you know, Petrucci, Lorenzo, Davizioso and Piero, all in the top eight, top seven, I think, in some sessions as well. Yeah. You know, they're regularly all punching there towards the front, which uh, which points to a fairly rounded bike um, that that works in most places, really. Um, Aragon, will be an- yeah, yeah. Aragon will be another test, saying that, because historically that's been, uh, that has really been kind to them. Um, but uh, it should be interesting to see because... Uh, if we're to go off 2017, what we've seen so far this year, um, you know, since Mugello, it, it's fast everywhere. Bar yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think for the really, really tight tracks, places like Saxon Ring, it's a little bit of a, the, the bike is still too much of a handful. Um, uh, but apart from that, I mean, it's it's competitive almost everywhere, and I would expect them uh, the bike to make another step forward next year. Um, so yeah, it's uh, this was I think proper proof that um, uh, that that they're capable of winning anyway. Well, that is the end of our winners and losers section and indeed the end of our show uh, for this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. I would like to thank my guest, uh, guest, contributor, colleague, let's say. Yes, my colleague, David Emmett from motomatters.com. Uh, your, you, your bro, your moto yeah, bro. Yeah, bro, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes, www.motomatters.com is where you can get your fill of all the juicy analysis of uh, of what goes on in MotoGP. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, you should uh, you should think about uh, taking out a subscription for that website. It's definitely worthwhile, says the man who doesn't have a subscription to David's website. But <laughs> uh, I will one day, David. One day I will. Oh, but but you pay me in different ways, don't you, Neil? <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> it could be... You know, that could be taken in so many ways. But anyway, <laughs> uh, best to end this show sooner rather than later, I'm thinking. Um, so, David, thank you very much for your company. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Neil. It's been uh, fascinating. And please uh, check out Neil's writing on uh, Crash.net and also in Road Racing World in the US. Um, also, um, make sure that you do support your magazines because um, if without magazines, there will be fewer journalists for uh, in the paddock and able to do things. Exactly. Okay. Well said, David. Okay, so thank you very much, dear listener. Uh, we appreciate your company for another episode. This is probably the best time of any to remind you that uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Paddock Pass Pod. You can also follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, we would love it if you could leave us a review because it helps other listeners find our show. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll speak to you soon. My mind went completely blank on the, who I'd chosen as my winner. I mean, I, made, I, I, I bullshitted my way out of it. I made a list, the sad fucker that I am, I made a list of the, uh, the, the biggest winning margins in Model 3 history. Yeah. Ten points, if you can tell me which was the biggest one, Dave. The, um, uh, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Yeah, no worries. And then they've hung up the fuckers. Anyway, <laughs> okay.